0: Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to build smart now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. You are a busy entrepreneur architect. You're hustling to find the next project, meet with clients, keep the bills paid. And if you're lucky, find some time to design. So how do you continue to learn what you need to know to grow? How do you find the information and the training you need to be more efficient, more effective, more successful? I know you're busy because I'm an entrepreneur architect too. That's why we built the Entre Architect membership. On the first Wednesday of every month, we invite an expert into the academy and they teach us about one specific topic on how to succeed at business. 60 minutes every month, live training and Q&A. And then you can get right back to work. And when you're a member, you'll gain access to so much more. Unlimited access to business resources, a comprehensive video library, and a private member forum with hundreds of entrepreneur architects just like you. Everything you need to build a better business is available right now at Entre Architect. Register today at entrearchitectcom join. My name is Mark R. LePage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise, all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. This is episode 291, and this week I'm with Paul McLean, and he's sharing how he became an architect to the stars. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors. RCAT, the online resource delivering quality building material information, CAD details, BIM specifications, and so much more at RCAT.com and FreshBooks, the cloud-based accounting software that makes running your small firm easy, fast, and secure. Spend less time on accounting and more time doing the work you love. Paul McLean, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Great. Thank you very much and very glad to be here. It's great having you here. Uh, You have an interesting story and I want to share that with the the Entree Architect community here. Uh, Let me introduce you and so people know who you are. Paul McLean grew up in Ireland where he attended the Dublin Institute of Technology, graduating with honors in architecture in 1994. Uh, During this time, he traveled and worked for award-winning architectural practices in London and Dublin and Sydney. And after graduation, he arrived in Southern California and worked for various local architectural firms before establishing his firm, McLean Design, in 2000. Paul is a member of the AIA and works primarily in California and Hawaii, Um, and he works for pretty high-level clients. I've read some articles. You've done some homes for Jay-Z and Beyonce and Calvin Klein, and so some pretty interesting work. Um, he recently released his first book, McLean Design, Creating the Contemporary House. So go check that out. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, it was written by Philip jo- Jodidio. Jodidio, is that how you say it? Thanks. Jo- yeah, Jodidio. I think so. And it's uh, published by uh, uh, Rizzoli Alecta. Uh, uh, the book takes us behind the scenes of 21 of the architects' uh, ultra ultra-modern ultra homes completed in the past 15 years. Um, It's a beautiful book. It's a beautiful monograph. So, Paul, I I shared a little bit about you, a little bit of a background of who you are and what you do. Um, But like everybody, we want to know more about you personally. So I would love for you to tell us your origin story. So go back to where you discovered architecture, what inspired you to become an architect, and give us the story from that point to where you find yourself today.
1: Gosh, well, it's a a long time ago at this point. Um, I really always wanted to be an architect since I was about four years old, according to my mother. And I used to draw houses on the living room floor on paper, build LEGO models. It was always houses for me for some reason. That was my my main uh, interest. And I guess I was probably around 10 or 11 years old when I found some books in the local library, which would have been Mainly Frank Lloyd Wright. There wasn't a very big architecture collection where I grew up in Dublin in in the local library, but there were one or two books. It would have been probably just Frank Lloyd Wright and then like pattern books of homes and whatever. And I remember finding that first book and seeing actually falling water and being completely fascinated by it and not quite understanding that it was a house back then and trying to get my head around that. So (laughs) I always, you know, for me, it's always been almost like a vocation. I've always wanted to be. An architect there's never really been anything else in fact i don't know what i would do if i wasn't being an architect at all i had no comprehension of that yeah. and um so yeah i grew up in dublin uh, in suburban dublin and um, went to school in uh in the center of dublin and um, did architecture uh, after high school and uh, got to travel, which was great. Uh, I, I was lucky enough to be able to do a trip around the world when I was about 19 or 20. I disappeared for 15 months and traveled through America and across the Pacific and back through Asia to get home again. And um, the other thing that was really interesting along my, my little journey through uh, architecture school was I had a couple of fascinating jobs. I had a job with the National Monument Service in Dublin. And what they do is they categorize all of the ancient monuments around Ireland, and that was that was a fascinating job. They would put me on a train with a bicycle, and I would go out into the countryside and find ruins and sketch them and catalog them. Oh, wow,
0: that's the that's so. That must have been a lot of fun. That that was
1: that was the, probably one of the best summers of my. Uh, yeah, early life. And uh,
0: I mean, if you could ever have a job like that, it's just, it couldn't be anything better. Did you document them? Did you have to measure them and do measured drawings? As measure, well? uh, yeah, do measured drawings, but measured sketch
1: drawings. And a lot of it was discovery. There, there's so much uh, in, in Ireland that way, so many ancient things that um, it, it It's really that they're not all cataloged yet. So it was trying to find things. Or sometimes it was there was a rumor that down this laneway there Mm. might be an ancient castle, and go find it. So that was uh, that was really fascinating. And of course, you would meet people along the way as well. They would invite you in for tea and whatever. So uh, it it was always stories. Um, One of one of my favorites. I know we're going way off track here, but one of my favorites was. I went down this laneway with a colleague, and we found a moat wrapping around what was a castle. But one tower is still intact, and the rest of it ruins. And then, sitting in the middle, was a little white thatched cottage, like sitting right in the middle of where the castle used to be, with a lady probably in her seventies who came right out straight away and you know offered us tea and you know scones and whatever, <laughs> gave us her stories of you know her family living there and her. her um, relatives going back several hundred years and you know, what she knew about the castle. So that was, that was that was a lot of fun. Was the castle
0: uh, was it related to her or was her family just sort of claimed that space after her family had kind of claimed that space yeah. later.
1: But but even still interestingly when, when I worked there, every time we would talk about buildings because there was back in, in that time in the early nineties there was a lot of money flowing into ireland for restoration and uh for tourism so they were often building uh interpretive centers and uh museums and so on and even you know infrastructure like utilities like toilet blocks and whatever that people could use when they visited these sites but i I was always trying to convince them they needed to do a really contemporary structure rather trying to you know replicate what was there so um did you ever
0: did you ever succeed at that
1: I might have done okay on a couple of toilet blocks, you know, but I think, you know, in general, I think where where that went and which is exciting is they, they started a competition process. So a lot of young architects in Ireland have designed interpretive centers and museums, and they've all been interesting how they come about. And the designs have been, some of them have been spectacular, and some of them have been just, uh, world-class I think so that that was pretty interesting and um, the other thing that happened was I worked for a year in Dublin for uh, my one of my tutors at college and they were involved in a group called group 91 which was a collection of eight different architecture firms who where back then, the city you know, the city had a lot of problems, and uh, there, there was a lot of vacant sites. It was before the economy took off, which is kind of at the late 80s, early 90s. And uh, they were very much influenced by uh, European urbanism, you know, like Al-Aurassi and uh Uh, some of the stuff that was going on in Berlin at the time, and uh, so there was a competition to take a section of the city, which had originally actually been designated for demolition, so that they could build a giant transport interchange, and what they came up with instead was a plan to knit it back together using insertions of new contemporary cultural projects, and then linking, creating new streets between different sections. That's now really the center of like tourism in the middle of Dublin, and right now, 20 years later. So it was uh, fascinating to get to, at that early age, to be involved. They won the competition. So it was like take a year off school and try and help develop a couple of buildings. We had two museums to work on. And uh, of course, back then, this was all before anyone was drafting computers and stuff, it was all hand drawing right. and hand sketching and perspectives, you know, which is um, something that I was luckily something I always. Always was pretty good at drawing, and uh, jobs just because I could draw. I could draw perspective drawing, color drawing, and so on, and uh, you know that was critical back then. Just you know, thirty years ago now, I guess.
0: Yeah. So, did, so did you? Um, well, actually, let's 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 continue with the origin story because I was going to ask you a question yeah. that would have brought us to current time, uh, or almost current time. So, so you so, so you're traveling the globe. And, uh, yeah, and trying using scraping, you know, pennies together
1: to move from place to place back in Dublin. Do a year off again, finish college, and then had some friends who live in California and decided to come out for the summer. And uh, kind of ran out of money, I guess, originally back then, and decided to stay. Uh, but I'd always wanted to come to to L.A. because I, I mean, as I went through college and discovered more about architecture, I mean, Los Angeles has always been, and in many ways, still is, one of the most important places. Places for residential architecture, I think for people have been experimenting here for over 100 years with contemporary design, and, and that's still going on today. And, and there's not many places, you know, residential architectural design is, is can be hard in many urban environments to find sites, or you know, have people have enough money. It takes a, you know, there's a mixture of things that have to come together. That I think. California is particularly suited to, in terms of the, the way. I mean, it's a very, obviously, very suburban city, but um, it does mean that there's decent-sized lots to work with. There's uh, hillsides and views, and uh, people who live here have the resources to invest in architecture. And then, being California, especially, I think people are open to new ideas and to being a little bit experimental with what's essentially an enormous amount of money. You know? and so so I felt like this would be a great place to try and do residential architecture. So when I got here, I worked on you know, trying to find architects that I could work for who, who did that type of thing. And um, I worked for a firm in Laguna Beach for about five years before we set up our firm and uh, learned a lot about residential design and know met some people along the way that helped me you know connect me to people clients potential clients and that's how we got going
0: so so you're sort of stranded in la (laughs) as a a student (laughs) um and or i i I guess, a young professional at that point. Young, young.
1: Yeah. Finished architecture school. Yeah. yeah.
0: And so you were were you licensed in Dublin at that point? I mean, in in Ireland? No, I I would have come straight
1: out of college there. And they
0: have a a system
1: a little bit different than here, but similar in that there is a licensing process that happens after you finish university. So. um, So, I mean, I really. Apart from my student jobs, which you know, I had jobs every summer, you know, with architecture firms. I never really practiced architecture at all in Ireland, it all happened here.
0: Yeah. And so you so you found someone to work with and they were yes. doing contemporary residential architecture. Right, in Laguna Beach, yeah. And so so doing some pretty nice projects right off the bat?
1: Yeah, I mean, they they were great projects, and uh, it, it really cemented for me that that's what I wanted to do with my career and my life. Um, and I think that it's uh, an interesting uh, compared to other part, forms of architecture. It's it, it, there is a skill set you need to do because you need to really be comfortable dealing with people, and you have to understand that for most of these people, this is. Pretty much all the money they'll ever spend or the most amount of money they'll ever spend on one thing in their lives and it's a very nerve-wracking process and so you have to be able to be patient and be comfortable dealing with people and able to communicate well to them in a non-architectural way that they understand what you're trying to get across and that they can be supportive of it and i think architects are not necessarily trained to do that and, and so it, it's some skills I, I wish at architecture school you know we're getting ahead of ourselves here but i wish people would think about that a little bit more that it's it's not really always about the design it's about trying to find a way to marry the design to the client which is really in a way a form of marketing you you need to be able to market yourself successfully so i am irish i know how to talk (laughs) we're all pretty good at talking and uh that helps having an accent sometimes helps as well um but uh, that was really how i got going was learning to talk to people learning to talk in front of design review boards and city council meetings to to convey the idea without you know getting lost in the idea in a way that people could understand the narrative and um you know that led me Doing those presentations got me some exposure in the local community that led people to start to approach me independently to see if I'd be interested in working on projects. I met this lady and she had bought a lot, which came with a set of plans for a Mediterranean style home. And as we were talking about it, listening to her, she was describing more like a mid-century home or something very typical California that was open to the environment and had retractable glass walls. And I told her that really it didn't make sense to try and rework these plans. She would be better off to start over because she she just was not gonna get what she wanted out of that. And that conversation ended, and then about six months later, funnily enough, on New Year's Day 2000, she called me back and said it was a new millennium, and she had decided (laughs) that's what she wanted to do. So um, I worked on that project for four or five months before I felt ready to Quit the day job and, and then that's where we started with this first house and um, it was uh, an amazing thing to be doing. It was about 3,000 square feet altogether and uh, made of three kind of transparent boxes sitting in a canyon and uh, you couldn't ask for a better project to start a firm with. So, and, you know, obviously after that, we attracted other people and it was a great time around then the economy was starting to pick up people were starting to build again and so we had two or three projects within a year and after that we were you know haven't looked back since
0: so that so that first client they she came to you through word of mouth that that you were working with this other firm and you were presenting and and so people sort of understood your skill level and and your personality and the way you were handling people and and so right, f- I, f- I think f- that you-
1: that's important. Yeah, for people, for younger architects, to understand is you, you got to get yourself out there. Sort of, you have to be out there that people can see you. Like Bill Clinton used to say, "Like ninety percent is just showing up."
0: Right, right, <laughs> you know? right, exactly. So that that personality. It sounds like through through what you are describing that a lot of your um, early success came because you were aware of this ability that that communication was important. This this people, this connection to people was important. Uh, to be a successful architect was that something that um, that that you learned uh, through experience or was that something that someone at that firm you were working for uh, was teaching you how did you learn that
1: I think I learned it more through experience and being experienced exposed to other architects, including the firm I was working at. He was a great communicator, as were some of the other architects I previously worked for. I worked for a firm in, in Sydney for a year and uh, when I was on my, my big trip, and that was an architect who just specialized, again, in, in home design. And we would meet clients, and I would see how he would interact with them and how, how he made them feel about their designs and how he brought them into the process of designing a house and made them part of it. And I so I think I learned it through experience, just watching other people. And uh, like I said before, drawing was a big factor in it because I was able to draw in three dimensions and in perspective renderings and so on. And when you don't have a portfolio, I mean, that's what you have to see. But that, what, what's a little bit different, I guess, or interesting about that compared to today, where we can generate so many wonderful images, you know, with computers, is that the artistry was also uh, a selling point that people were attracted to. They like to watch you draw. They like to see the drawings. Sometimes they would. Ask if they could keep the drawings and put them on their wall, you know. And that's something that is, I think, kind of lost a little bit today. Even mm-hmm. I don't draw anymore because, you know, you can produce a 3D model and get like 20 renderings off it of different views and angles, and move it and change it. and It's just so much more productive. But uh, I think that did really help back then in you know the beginning of the century, <laughs>
0: that's yeah. so
1: long ago, yeah. uh, 20 years ago. It really helped me get off the ground because people were. You know, they had seen me talk, they they had to take a chance, so I had to try and, you know, sell them on the idea that I could do this, which is part of the, the problem. It's like they have to spend all this money and someone has to you have to convince them that you're actually gonna be able to pull this off, actually help them build this project, it won't all be a, a desperate failure.
0: Yeah, exactly. I, you know, and I think the the um, the the ability to sketch, the ability to draw that architects have I often say that that's our superpower as architects because when people yeah. when lay people who are not architects see us do it they are fascinated by it they're amazed by it right it's like yeah, it's, it's like very- this this magic trick that we can do yeah, I think
1: we shouldn't forget that amongst all this technology because that that almost like a performance art you know it's something that they're attracted to and showing them some beautiful 3d renderings doesn't have the same impact at all as you sitting there with a piece of sketch paper and a pen and scribbling out ideas and then feeling like there's the kernel of something coming out of your brain is now appearing on paper that's going to become a real live thing in the world it's you know
0: it's very exciting for people yeah. And and I think even I think it's even more important today because when we when we first started because you're around the same age as I am you graduated a year after I did and so it's it's um, today it's even more important because it's it's a differentiator because nobody's doing it where when when we first started everybody was doing it because that's how you did architecture right (laughs) we sketched and then we did hand drawings on a drafting board. Um, yeah. But today everybody's doing computer drawings and even, you know, the, the younger architects are exclusively, you know, they're, they're starting on, in the computer. They're not sketching anything. Um, right. And so the ability to sketch and the ability to take your idea and put it on a piece of paper in front of a client could actually differentiate you from everybody else who they're talking with. And so that's a skill that you should use and, and, uh, and leverage as a young architect.
1: I definitely couldn't agree more. In fact, I'll tell you a little story. A while ago, a few years ago, a client who will remain nameless. I remember, like the first time I went to her house, she actually put a roll of sketch paper in front of me and a pen, and she just said, "Draw something." I'm like, <laughs> like draw a wash <laughs> anything went, Any-, you know? <laughs> I'm like really anything so I just start doodling and then she started giggling you know and she was so excited about the idea of drawing and yeah. painting and coloring you know for her that was just so such a thing but I also think Mark it's interesting when uh, you know when you draw Are you sketching, especially when you're just sketching and you're kind of ruminating on ideas and you're kind of the pen is just kind of moving kind of freely or the pencil in your hand. And it's amazing how sometimes you see almost between the lines something that grabs your attention. And I, you know, that's obviously how I grew up and how you grew up. But I, I don't know how you do that on a computer. You know, right. Because you have to make more deliberate decisions in a way you have to say I want to draw a line in 3d coordinates and you start where it says on a piece of paper, it's just kind of is it a section? Is it a plan? Is it three dimensional? I don't know, it's just a doodle and it just slowly becomes something that grows out of that like organically. So yeah. I think that's something that, you know, could could easily get lost, um, as well as being something you can really leverage to your advantage.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, so that so that original client, three boxes in the valley how did yeah. that become you know what you have today what 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 you're doing today that's you know published in the book
1: well, I think it started, you know, interestingly, that lady chose to build a house herself. So um, that was also a big journey for both of us. We had to spend a lot of time trying to figure that out. And uh, it's uh, it's interesting. She did it the right way. She took her name was Patty Civic. She took her she gave up her day job because I don't think you can build a house if you're doing a job and you're turning up for half an hour in the morning right. to meet yep. someone. Um, but she she really really put her heart and soul into it and uh, that inspired me a lot and um i think as we started to gather clients and i was at that time almost exclusively in laguna beach which is a small uh, beachside town in california um with uh you know, a lot of expensive homes and uh, complicated hillsides. So, and there's a design review board and the design review board, you know, was, was the, you know, the, the, a big advantage and the bane of my existence at the same time <laughs> right. um, because there is, there's a lot of neighborhood input, but uh, if you can successfully navigate the project process, you end up getting more clients because people are most concerned when they move to town and they want to build a house, they're most concerned, like, how can we get through the design review board? So, being you know having that, that first project approved and uh, being able to draw it in three dimensions, which like I said back then there were no digital tools for that, uh, no PowerPoint presentations or anything like that. So that was for the, the board members who are not architects mainly. But that was a was a, a big advantage, and also the architects on the board. When when they used to have architects on the board, they don't anymore. Uh, they were also very encouraging. Obviously, you know, because they like to help younger architects kind of get a foothold. So that was really how we built our firm in the first four to five years, just meeting people or, you know, people telling their friends or their neighbors, um, how about you'd look at this person for a home and sometimes we ended up doing homes next door to each other because we had to spend a lot of time interacting with the neighbors as part of you had to hold public meetings and so you, you stand on the street and have 30 40 people show up and have to explain to them why this house was appropriate for the neighborhood but that was also surprisingly a good way of getting new clients because people will come and listen to you and then they would be like well I have, a, I have a lot down the street and how about you look at that uh, if they liked how you presented it and thought you were being fair to to both sides. And there was a lot of compromise in that process, too, which was humbling and a big learning experience that, you know, coming out, you think your designs are all going to be exactly the way you want them. And reality is you've got not only your client and their wishes and desires and your budget constraints, and you've now got neighbor constraints on top of that, where they're worried about their view or they don't like the color or they don't like privacy concerns. And you're trying to keep this design together while you navigate all the those different requirements.
0: Yeah, and, and, and it comes back to communication, right? It comes back to communication skills. That when you're, not only do you need those communication skills to be recognized and acknowledged by potential clients, but now through a very complicated approval process with a board potentially of completely you know non-architecturally educated reviewers, which is frustrating for any architect to have to present uh, architectural design to a panel of people who don't understand how architecture is designed, <laughs> and so right. so that so again you're right back to that that conversation of having the communication skills and the people skills to to successfully navigate that process uh, and and do it you know do it successfully over and over, which makes you um, recognized in the community again. People see that. You can do that, and now that's a skill that you can promote and, and, uh, and leverage for the next project.
1: Right, and I think if you look at the most successful architects ever, most um, of them are incredible. And that's the uh, business. I mean, they may have two or three hundred people working for them. Um, but the reason they're the person there is because they're the one who can communicate to people and interact with whether it's the community or politicians or, or developers or whomever it is they have to work with. It really comes down to that ability to talk to people.
0: We will come right back to our conversation after this quick break to say thank you to our platform sponsors here at Entre Architect. RCAT and FreshBooks. If you work with specifications in your firm, you probably have come across outdated manufacturer specs with confusing notes, products that no longer exist, or maybe even companies that no longer exist. Maybe you even pay for specifications. Do you do that? Stop. There's a better way to find manufacturer specifications for your project documentation. It's RCAT. RCAT.com. RCAT is the number one most used website for finding building product information and has a free library with over 1,400 up-to-date, accurate specifications. 1,400 up-to-date, accurate specifications. RCAT's specs are written by FCSI, CCS, and AIA professionals based on manufacturer's data. Use RCAT's powerful search engine to find the right specifications for your project and quickly download them into multiple formats for free. Google can't do that. You don't even have to register. Go now to RCAT.com, that's RCAT.com, A-R-C-A-T.com and start building better content today. Do you remember when you started your small firm? It was not easy. It took lots of late nights, early mornings, and maybe even the occasional all-nighter. Bottom line, you have been insanely busy ever since. So why not make things a little bit easier for yourself? Well, our friends at FreshBooks have the solution. FreshBooks invoicing and accounting software is designed specifically for small business owners like us. It's simple, intuitive, and keeps you way more organized than that dusty shoebox filled with crumpled receipts. Create and send professional looking invoices in 30 seconds and then get them paid two times faster with automated online payments. File expenses even quicker and keep them perfectly organized for tax time. And the best part, FreshBooks grows alongside your business. So you'll always have the tools that you need when you need them, without ever having to learn the ins and outs of accounting. Join the 24 million people who've used FreshBooks. Try it for free for 30 days. No catch, no credit card. Free for 30 days. Visit entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks and enter entrearchitect in the how did you hear about us section to get started. That's entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks. RCAT and FreshBooks. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entrez Architect community. So, so the, the, the portfolio that you have today, what type of, how, how are you getting the, the projects that you're getting today? Is it, is it the same thing? Is it becoming an expert yeah, in the true. process and, and just continuing the evolution of that, that, those skills?
1: Yeah, I think so, um, to a degree. We, we moved kind of away from, you know, we, we got a bigger audience in a way. I mean, that's that's kind of changed a little bit in the sense that we, we still get most of our projects through word of mouth. Um, but along the way, as more work has been published and as we've worked in different communities, um, it's exposed us to more people. And uh, like, so I think it, we started to do work in greater los angeles around 2006 2007 and uh, the house we did one particular project and funny enough i was there last night uh, was the house we did on blue jay way which is in our book but that's been published a lot that we finished around 2008 and was most recently owned by the dj of um that project was probably the seminal project that Helped us to get a leg up and move beyond the smaller communities we were working in that separated us because it was designed for someone. And then when the recession happened in 2008, they needed to sell it. And it sold for a lot of money, and a lot of money, even though the economy was collapsing all around us at that stage. And that opened a lot of people's eyes, especially in the real estate world of West LA. um, And then we started to get approached by people uh, who who wanted us to do designs, and uh, you know, as we finished those designs up two or three years later, and the economy started to pick up, and some of those were for sale, which was very interesting to me, like during the recession, we we're basically working on speculative projects, which sounds bizarre. Normally it's the other way around, and uh, but by the time the recession was over and those projects were on the market, they were knocking it out of the park in terms of their sales price and so on, and the reality is then that attracts more people to you, and people start talking about the homes. And so it started to build from there. So we got very, very lucky to get to do that one house and that it got as much exposure as it does. And it's interesting that you can look back and see. For me, it's very interesting that I can look back and see this one house and what a difference it made in the career, even though we were working on, you know, 20 or 30 homes prior to that. course of seven or eight years it's like this is the one project that switched the way our business works around and as we build more and more then i think as the projects get bigger people they're looking at looking for architects and they're looking for people who obviously have experience at doing these type of homes and as the budget in a way gets larger they become a little bit more conservative i think Um, they're they're not willing, perhaps, to take a chance as much as they were on some of the smaller projects. I mean, it's a big difference yeah. financially for a client between doing a 1,500-square-foot home and a you know 20,000-square-foot home. And so, in a way, they, they end up with just, there's certain people who are doing that style of home in that neighborhood, and then we get called. You know? yeah. So there's a little less word of mouth. And then the biggest change, actually, in terms of that in the last couple of years has been Instagram. Um, which when um, I think it was my wife started by encouraging me to go on Instagram about two years ago and we started posting and our original thought was it would you know a lot of our clients were on Instagram and it's a way just to kind of remind them hello we're still here if you're thinking of things or just you know keeps letting them see you putting you in front of them. But recently, in the last year or so, we've started to get clients just purely off posts on Instagram um, in different places, Uh, not not necessarily locally, but we have a project now in Las Vegas and uh, we have a project in Thailand and both of those came from just people watching Instagram. So that's been, I think Instagram is an amazing tool for architects because
0: it's so visual. Yeah, that's very interesting. So how are you leveraging Instagram? What are you posting and how often are you posting?
1: usually posting once a day uh, and we're, we're posting imagery just imagery of houses concentrating on the photos not really um, talking too much which I think that people just like to flick through images so we're trying to more that we look for more arresting photos uh, it's just interesting looking at how it works people uh, don't seem at least from for our perspective they're more interested in the kind of the bigger shots of the entire property the house you know uh, uh, nighttime shots all lit up with swimming pools things like that I've a lifestyle photos so I think would be a way yeah. to put it um, I we've tried doing um, weeks where or- We've just posted bathrooms or kitchens and stuff, and then that hasn't really worked out. People don't tend to like them, though. It's just interesting watching how that works. Uh,
0: So it's the big money shots, I guess,
1: that are the ones people are most interested in. And all
0: (laughs) professional, very, very high quality photography as well. Yeah, yeah. So we're always, you know, it's always professional photography from our projects that we're posting. Right. Because, I mean, you look at some Instagram accounts, and it's more of sort of a a behind-the-scenes look at the architecture firm. It looks like your Instagram feed is is really a, a, a photographic portfolio uh, of the the work that you do. At a, you know at the the very high quality images, big money shots. You know the swimming pool, the overhead view, the the cool angle on the glass box. You know all those things that catch your eye right away, and you stop and you want to look at it.
1: Yeah, that, that's what, that's our, our goal, and it's it seems to be working. But we've been trying also to mix it up a little bit and put some more personal. Uh, maybe more personal from the business perspective, not necessarily, you know, yeah. being to want to maintain privacy for our families and stuff, but just like if we have events at homes or, uh, if like there was a wedding recently at one of our homes and we went to the wedding and that was a lot of fun. And so we posted some pictures from the wedding and so on, but, you know, still showing off the house in the background.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, so, uh, and you're well published in addition to the book, you're published in magazines and online. Um, how how are you doing that? Are you working with a, a, a PR agency or a marketing company, or are you doing that in-house?
1: We are working with a PR a company. Since we launched the book, we hired somebody because we, we had never worked on a book before. And it was uh, we were working with Rizzoli, and they were amazing. But they're obviously their goal is to get the book published and then it's up to us to help get the book out there and sold so right. we, we hired a PR firm to help us with that and uh, Christine Anderson is the name of the lady there and they've been phenomenal it's, it's really been interesting to see how much more uh, their input has helped to um, get the, the book out there and also to get us into magazines and so on and there does definitely seem to be a need for people that have connections with editors and writers and I I don't think it's it's in any way nefarious or anything I think it's just that like many things you just aren't on their radar you need Mm -hmm. someone who can they trust who can say hey you should pay attention to this person and what they're doing or take a look at this and just to get someone to get you over that line and then they're like oh yeah that's really nice I'd like to Put that in my magazine, works great. But if you try and just cold call these magazines and so on, then you don't really get much response usually. So yeah. um, I think it's been uh, Creative Arts a, is the name of the company, but they've been amazing at that. And, you know, it's interesting even just following how the book's been selling. You can follow it a little bit on Amazon and so on. We've seen that where they've managed to get the book into magazines and so on. You'll see a little bump in the number of sales figures and stuff. So that's, yeah, I think they definitely are worth the money we pay. Know.
0: Yeah. That's actually how we got connected. You know, she reached out to me and, and she does a good job because I typically delete every one of those requests. <laughs> if, if it's not somebody that I reach out to, or one of my team reach out to that we recruit to come onto the podcast, very rarely do we bring on somebody who is being solicited, solicited to us, um, or solicited, solicited to us. Um, and, uh, it's just her approach and the way she handled it was very professional. And, uh, so I, you know, I, I said, well, let me learn more, and yeah, and so, and I'm glad we did because it was, a, it's a really interesting conversation, uh, because you have very interesting work and you have an interesting firm, and it's great to sort of hear the the background uh, of how your your firm works. Um, I had one other question before we wrapped up here. Um, I don't remember what it was. Uh, oh, that's what it was. I wanted to know a challenge. So in in somewhere in your in your career, um, was there any sort of big challenge that you had to overcome? um, And how did you overcome it?
1: It's funny, but it really relates to the rest of our conversation. It's all about communication. I mean, there have been challenges. There have been times when things have gone very wrong with clients uh, on job sites, miscommunication, uh, things that turned out not to be way mistakes we've made. We've made some pretty big mistakes. It's amazing. You know, sometimes we're still here. But the, the thing I learned from that is that um, the first thing you need to do, I mean, the way we approach problems when they happen, and uh, is we try and figure out, first of all, how the problem came about, Um, and what is the best solution. And then as soon as we possibly can, we just go straight up there and apologize if necessary, explain what went wrong, take responsibility for it, and then offer a solution. And I think that people often, particularly maybe it's as especially younger architects who are maybe perhaps not so quite so confident you know due to, to you know where they are in the career the, the danger is to kind of bury your head in the sand and hope it goes away and that never works yes. <laughs> and that's what leads to big problem bigger problems like lawsuits and so on and we've been very fortunate to, to be able to navigate because our clients are, are obviously very successful and very wealthy generally, and so they have resources, you know, and so they could make our lives very difficult. Yeah, <laughs> and they there's, you to. know, they're
0: an attorney on hand, ready. Right? They just they like sick it, them it, and it's, you know? it's, so, they go
1: attack, right? And so yeah, there you go. So, um so I think that's probably the thing I learned along the way that I feel like I need to pass on, and, and it really relates right back to that communication issue that. You know, if you need to find ways to communicate your ideas and communicate what's going on to people, and be upfront and open, so that they um, feel that you know you're being honest with them, and that they're getting value for money, and that they're uh, you know that they're not being taken advantage of. You know, people, I think, like we said at the beginning, when you're designing a home, and it doesn't matter if it's a 1,500 square foot house or a hundred thousand square foot house, you know everyone has essentially the same worries they, you know they they they're worrying can they afford it they're worrying are they doing the right thing um they're they're hesitant about every decision they're making you know because for the, it's such an important decision and it's easy you know, as, as as an architect, when you're working on a lot of projects or, you know, to think about, oh, why are they so obsessed about, you know, where the broom closet's going? I mean, that doesn't sound so important, but but you have to adjust your thinking about that, you know, because, you know, they're the person that's for them is, a, is an important thing right now. And, and that's something that's make, keeping them awake at night. And you'd be amazed that, like, I've had clients um, where I've been on vacation, I've come back and they've been stuck on what color purple the door should be you know is it this blue black color and they've been losing sleep over it you know and you know instead of taking that lightly you need to take that seriously and just you know help um, that's what you're there for and they're, they're asking that's why they have you to help them make those decisions as well another and another interesting little side note is a, a client of mine that i remember going to a first interview with a lady and her husband and she told me that um they lived in a very conventional house, very traditional, in uh, in the suburban part of greater Los Angeles. And she told me that she wanted her new house to be very homey. And I was thinking about this word, homey, and I'm thinking, gosh, well, you know, if you look at our work, it's not really how I would describe our work, it's homey. And and I was kind of thinking, where is this going? I don't know what to do with this. You know, are we are we talking log cabins or, you know, French shooter designs? And then we went to look at some homes that we'd done, and I took her to this house that you know people would say looks a little bit um it's uh, you almost can't tell if the pictures are black and white in color because the the palette is so stark and everything is so perfectly gray black or white and she walked in and said yes this is really homey." (laughs) i was completely taken aback but so her perception of what what she meant was something Not on my radar and that was that was a very interesting lesson to learn that to to try and figure out what what your client really wants at the end of the day it's not what you want it's what they want and i mean for me we're in this tremendously fortunate position and we've had the chance to build all these great homes and obviously when we get a new client they're coming to us based on our portfolio so I don't really have to worry anymore about whether they like what we do because otherwise they wouldn't be calling um but i need to figure out what they like and how to marry those two together you know so i think that's that's a, always a big challenge but that's the exciting bit too and you never know what's going to come out of that
0: yeah it's it's so interesting to hear you talk about the the challenges and how you overcome them and, and how you be honest even at that very high level with. With clients with a lot of money and a lot of resources and a lot of support um, to them, it takes a lot of courage to say, yes, we made a mistake and here's what the mistake is and here's how we're going to fix it. And And I've written articles about that. I agree with you that you, you take accountability and it actually builds your credibility and builds your trust with the client because you did, uh, be, um, you were held accountable, you know, uh, for the for the issue. Um, it, it's it's very interesting the um, so let's let's wrap up with our last final question here, Paul. Um, what is one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow?
1: For themselves for tomorrow, or for for the world? I mean, what's the question? I guess. It could, well, it's
0: <laughs> it's intended to be for their firm and for themselves, yeah. but it can it can be answered any way that you'd like to answer it.
1: Well, I think um, you know, obviously, we're we're. Like we've talked about, marketing and communication are are really really important, obviously. Uh, and we live in a in a very digital world, and it's interesting that there's opportunities even for very small farms. I mean, our farm is not very large, um, but you can do work not necessarily locally; you can do work all around the world. in In the way things are today, so I think um, just being trying to be open to to that, but to prepare for it, like we talked about. Um, concentrate instead of thinking of portfolio just in terms of what buildings you have or what um, you know what that what the design looks like think of it in terms of what are you trying to communicate to people Um, how you're the people you're trying to target how does this relate to them versus how does it relate to my portfolio you know it's like how do I get them and then try and find places where you can get yourself exposed that way through whatever means that is doing informal communication or going to places where you can meet people that they can you got to be there they have to know you're there I think that's probably the biggest lesson and I've found over the years it's amazing how quickly people forget about that you're there you know um it's and it's not on purpose just everyone's life is so busy and it's the same for me with um like we've worked with some great contractors and i'll suddenly bump into a contractor or he'll call me co-call me like gosh i've worked with that guy for five years and he was great why did i forget i like that guy i like working with him that was a good project you know but it's just they're not on your front radar because we're all so busy so I, i think just trying to make sure you're out there and make sure that people understand what you're trying to do I don't know if that's any good advice at yeah, all. Yeah, fantastic
0: advice, fantastic advice. So the book, the book is uh, McLean Design. So it's M C C L E A N. McLean Design, creating the contemporary house, uh, published by uh, Rizzoli, and uh, the website. If you want to go check out um, Paul's website, it's McLeanDesign.com. Uh, as mentioned, very active on Instagram. Go follow him at McLe- uh, McLean Design. Um, Paul, this has been a, a great uh, half hour, a little 45 minutes or so. Great conversation. Uh, I appreciate you, you so much. being so transparent and so honest with uh, with the way that your firm has grown and the way that you're practicing. Uh, I appreciate it. And I thank you for joining us here at Entree Architect Podcast.
1: Thanks a million, Mark. Talk to you soon.
0: Thank you for sharing this and every episode of Entree Architect Podcast with your friends. The link for today's episode with Paul McLean is EntreeArchitect.com slash episode 291. EntreeArchitect.com slash episode 291. That is how we get the, the word out about Entree Architect and the Entree Architect Podcast, how we can keep growing and keep making a difference in the profession of architecture share the link entrearchitect.com slash episode 291 with Paul McLean. And if you are looking for a simple, efficient way to learn what you need to know to grow your small firm, then join the hundreds of other entrepreneur architects who've already registered at Entree Architect membership, 60 minutes every month, live training and Q&A, then you can get back to work. Join us today at entrearchitect.com join. It's that simple. entrearchitect.com join. Love, learn, and share what you know. Thanks for listening. Spread the word and have a great week.